0: I'm getting excited by the story. I've been really drawn in by it as we've read the gospel through. Right at the start of this particular gospel, Luke sets out what he's trying to do for this guy called Theophilus. Now, whether Theophilus was a real person or a pseudonym or um, it's just anybody who happens to be reading the gospel, Luke says, I'm going to write this for two purposes. Um, I'm going to set out an orderly account of things. You may have heard lots of things about Jesus, but I'm going to to set it out in in a story which you can enter into and which you can read and be part of. And also, I'm going to write it in such a way that you may know the certainty of what you have been taught. You may know the certainty of what you have been taught. Maybe you've heard all sorts of things about Jesus, Luke is saying. Well, actually, come and read what I've written here to be actually able to be certain of what it is that people have been saying about him. And Luke sets that story out in, I think, five different acts during the way in which he tells the story in Luke and Acts. So act one is Jesus' um, birth and his, his childhood. We were looking at those um, particular chapters before Christmas. Act 2, and we start with Jesus' baptism and his temptation, and then we read of his ministry in Galilee. And this morning we're coming towards the end of that particular act of the gospel. In Act 3, Jesus turns his face towards Jerusalem, and he begins that journey to the capital city and all that lays ahead in it. In Act 4, Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension Then in Act 5, in Volume 2, our book of the Acts, we have Jesus' ministry continued by spirit-empowered disciples. So Luke begins to draw us into the story and then says at the end, actually you ought to be part of this and continue the story on into the future. So as I said this morning, we're coming towards the end of Act 2 of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And this second act of the story is bookended by two declarations from the Father. So at Jesus' baptism, at the start of the act, a voice is heard from heaven declaring this, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Then at the Transfiguration, as we will read next week, Another voice from heaven is heard. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. You are my son. This is my son. And then in Nazareth, Jesus took up that scroll of Isaiah that was given to him by the synagogue leader and he turns it to Isaiah 61 and he begins to read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me too and goes on with a list of what those things are. But he finishes that um, time in, in the Nazareth synagogue by saying, I'm the one who fulfills all that's written here. This is all about me and the ministry that I'm going to do. There are immense claims. You are my son, this is my son. This is fulfilled in me, says Jesus. Maybe we've heard those claims of Jesus. And we know, don't we, that claims and declarations are one thing. But evidence that they stand up to scrutiny is another. It's a dilemma that John the Baptist faced. John's in prison. He's scared. He knows that death is probably imminent. And he's worried about whether he's back the wrong horse. Jesus, are you really who I thought you were? Are you really the one I should be expecting? Those doubts keep going on and on in his mind, and he sends his disciples off to Jesus. Maybe it's a question that you've found yourself asking at times too. Is this all really just a game I've been playing? Or is Jesus... For real. So in the Galilee scenes that come in Act 2 of his Gospel, Luke paints us a widening picture of Jesus, of his life and ministry. And as we look at that life and ministry, we find that the claims and the declarations are actually being backed up by genuine action as Jesus lives out his life. We saw something of that last week as as Richard led us through about Jesus being the teacher and this morning of Jesus, the healer. Like the prophets Elijah and Elisha before him, Jesus brings healing and wholeness to broken lives. And it's this which Jesus says to John's disciples, go back and tell John. Tell John to put the doubts and questions to one side because of what's going on. Go back and report to him what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. It's a reiteration of what Jesus had said was fulfilled in himself from the Isaiah scroll in Nazareth. But as we read the story, Through Luke's Gospel in this Act 2, we find evidence that those claims are true. A man with an evil spirit is delivered of it in Capernaum. Many come to Jesus to be healed at Simon Peter's house. Some men lower their friend through the roof, and their friend is healed and forgiven. A man with a shriveled arm is in the synagogue on a Sabbath, and Jesus heals him. A centurion comes along and says, my servant is is ill and needs healing, and Jesus reaches out to that servant. A widow in Nain sees her son brought back to life. And in the episode just before, um, where Adrian started to read this morning, we find a man called Legion, imprisoned by many spirits on the other side of the lake. So when, when that reading started, now when Jesus returned, he'd been on the far side of Galilee, and now he comes back. But on that far side of Galilee, this man with many spirits in him, to such the extent that they been they'd caught him legion, that man is cleaned and healed and freed. And now we have the two instances of healing that are here in the gospel this, in our gospel reading this morning. Maybe some of you have doubts about Jesus, about his identity join with Theophilus in looking at the portrait that Luke is painting, and consider what sort of person could do all these things. One of the songs that we often sing when we go out and do the school assemblies, the 23 that we do um, pretty well each month, And uh, one of the songs in the middle of that talks about Jesus being the one who heals the sick and um, stills the storm. And there are very appropriate actions that go with that, which the kids love joining in with. But the punchline through that particular um, song is this, who is this man? Only God can do that. Who is this man? Only God can do that. Jesus' healing miracles are there as a reassurance for John the Baptist, as John in his prison cell keeps asking those questions, and his disciples go back, No, you're right. It's okay, John. Just watch what's going on, just watch what Jesus is doing. And they provide a foundation, I think, for Paul's declaration of who Jesus is, which again we'll read next week. But Jesus teaches and Jesus heals in these verses. But the various healing stories, I think, combine to teach us something about Jesus' approach to healing. One of those is that Jesus is interested in the whole person. So when he comes to heal, he's interested in both the physical and the spiritual, and will work with both. When the man's lowered through the roof to be healed... Jesus doesn't just heal him of his paralysis, but he forgives him of his sins as well. It's a beautiful bringing together, a spiritual and physical. And Jesus is interested in that. Jesus sees that healing and restoration takes precedence over rules which may be in place to try and curb things. For Jesus to step outside of that. When that man with a shriveled arm is there in the synagogue on the Sabbath, Jesus heals him. And the religious leaders are really up in arms. You're doing work on the Sabbath. How dare you? And Jesus says, what's more important? What's more important? The compassion for this man who suffered is the thing that's more important we see that Jesus knows and and demonstrates that his healing and his ministry knows no ethnic or racial boundaries. We can't confine Jesus to being for us, for the inside. He's for all, wherever they are. When a Roman centurion comes to seek healing for his servant, Jesus declares that he's not seen such faith on the lips of anybody else before he's met with this Roman satura and this foreigner who's invaded his land. And yet Jesus praises his faith. Jesus sees healing too, not as an end in itself, but as a means of restoration into community, as a restoring of people back into community. Go back through those stories that come in the, the earlier chapters. The leper, the men with evil spirits, the woman in our story this morning, they were all on the outside. They were the ones whose society said, you aren't allowed near us. Get out. We don't want to be near you. You don't count. And as Jesus exercises his healing ministry, they are restored into community. The leper is cleansed and is now acceptable back in community. The woman is healed of her illness, as we'll see a bit more in a minute. She's now back into community. These people who are healed are no longer untouchables. Jesus' healing brings restoration into community. And Jesus also demonstrates that in coming alongside people to heal, then he's willing to step outside the cultural taboos of the time and to act in compassion beyond what people would say, sorry, you can't do that. We see it in both these cases. The woman was probably suffering from some sort of menstrual problem. It meant that she was ritually unclean. And if you got anywhere near her and touched her or she touched you, you became unclean. And it's remarkable that Jesus actually proclaims, I've been touched. Who touched me? And this woman comes before him. He's indicating that he himself, by the rules of the day, are unclean, but he's willing still to deal with this woman. And similarly, when he goes to Jairus's daughter, it was taboo in that culture that you did not touch a dead body because she became unclean. And what happens? We read that when Jesus goes into the room, he takes her by the hand. He touches that dead body. He's willing to cut through all of that in order to show his healing power. And he calls us to that too. I wonder who sometimes we think, but on the edge, I'm not sure about getting near that person in order to pray with them. I guess one of the the nearest that we've got to that in our own culture um, from a few years back was when those first pictures emerged of Princess Diana touching those suffering from AIDS. They were the untouchables, the people you didn't get near. And Jesus calls us in our ministry, in our ministry of healing and of prayer to get alongside those who maybe we find it hard to be alongside. So what are the two people in our story this morning? Well, the woman in our reading reaches out and just touches the hem of Jesus' cloak. She hasn't got the faith to go up to him straight and say, Jesus, I need healing. And like Jairus who does, She's willing to go with the faith that she has rather than the faith that she hasn't and just touches the hem of his garment. In the touching, she is healed. But as part of calling her out from the crowd, I think that's again part of Jesus restoring her into community to say, this woman who you've shunned all these years, she's now clean. And he can say to her, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Her faith is emboldened and she's restored into community. I think sometimes we can have a tendency to say things like, I wish I had the faith of so-and-so. Or maybe people have said to you, I wish I had your faith. What this story shows for us is that there's the faith that we do have that counts. The woman could have said, well, I haven't got the faith of Jairus. I can't go and speak to Jesus. Therefore, I won't do anything. If she'd taken that line, she would not have been healed. No, she uses the little faith that she does have, or the big faith actually, that she does have, and goes to Jesus for that. And Jesus responds appropriately to it. I think Jairus's faith is tested in a very different way in the story. He's found Jesus. He's pleaded with Jesus to come to his home to deal with his sick daughter, who's dying. They're on the way, and then this woman intervenes. Now, put yourself in Jairus' shoes for a moment. I wonder what would have been going through your mind at that stage. Come on, Jesus, leave her, get, get a move on. Come on, we, we've got to get there quickly. And then that devastating news when the servant comes and says, it's too late, don't bother him anymore. It's interesting to listen to the way Adrian phrased the words there, because I, I know when I, every time I read that, I'm never quite sure where to put the emphasis. And um, it's hard when we, when, we, when we go into the story at that sort of level. Jairus keeps on. He keeps going. He continues to trust. And he and his wife are not even put off by the traditional mourners who are standing in the doorway, weeping and wailing. They ignore the scoffing words. And Jesus says, she's not sleep, not dead, she's just sleeping. Their faith keeps going through the hardships, through the times when it seems as if Jesus may not be able to act in the way and in the timeliness that they want. But he comes alongside that little girl, takes her hand, asks her to get up. And then what's remarkable is he turns to his parents and says, go and get her some food. <laughs> We're not told what that little girl was suffering from, but I wonder, when had she last eaten? That physical and that spiritual going together as Jesus brings his healing power to bear on her, but then actually says to the parents, she needs some food now, go and get some for her. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus' awareness of what's going on. And did you notice that when he talks to the girl, he describes her as my child? My child. Reminded me of the words we use at baptism services. Um, Louise, one of our students, was baptized last Sunday. And there's that point in the service where we we say these words over the baptism candidate, Christ claims you for his own. And that's, I think, is what Jesus was doing with that little girl, As he says, get up. And he says, my child, get up. He's claiming her afresh. For his own. He's restoring her into relationship with her family, but with himself and with God as well. And that's part of the healing processes that go on as Jesus acts to restore us into the image of the Creator as they were intended to be. Luke tells these stories to help Theophilus and all the subsequent readers to better understand and be assured of what they've been taught. And as we read it through, I hope, this, this gospel through, I hope that will also build our faith as well and our trust in Jesus and, and in all that God intends for us. But I think Luke is doing something else too in this gospel and that is he's presenting Jesus as a model for what he's calling his disciples to be doing as well. So that healing ministry isn't something that finishes with Jesus, it goes on in the life of the disciples. We find it at the beginning of chapter 9, just after our reading. Jesus brings them together and he sends them out, and he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal those who were sick. And if we go on to um, Act five of Luke's stories in our book of the Acts, we find those actions very similar to this chapter being carried out by Peter and, uh, and by Paul. So that ministry of healing and of reconciliation going on into the lives of disciples, and it's a, a ministry that the church has continued to have down through history. History of hospices and hospitals is largely founded on the work of Christians in their in foundation. My fairly regular visits to hospital over the, these, these past few months for various reasons, it's been great to keep bumping across church members in their workplace and just being able to greet them and just seeing them in their, in their workplace and, and the, the ministry that they're doing. Continue to pray for them as they bring Jesus' healing into the hospital and into the patients that they are, they are alongside. But James urges also those who are ill to call on the elders of the church to come and pray and anoint them for healing. And that's a ministry we still carry out here today. But I think it's wider than just the church leadership. All of us are to be involved in praying for those who are ill. In body, mind or spirit, as the old prayer book service has it. In our small groups. By putting something in the community prayer book so that we can all pray for each other. So that we can share in that that ministry of healing through prayer. I wonder if you meet someone who is ill, is your first instinct to say to them, would you like me to pray for you? If you hear someone is unwell, do you remember to jot their name down in your prayer diary to pray for them? If you're like me trying to say, I'll remember it up here, it doesn't work anymore. Needs to go down on a bit of paper somewhere so that I've got that with the rest of the stuff and people I'm praying for. We're all involved in that praying. At its simplest, it may simply be that of praying that that person would know God's peace in the situation they're currently in. I used to think that was a bit of a cop-out. Should I really be praying for something else? But actually, the number of people I've spoken to who said, actually, that was just the right prayer for me at that time. I know from personal experience that's true as well. But there will be times, maybe most of them, when we specifically begin to pray for the illness that somebody is suffering, that God will deal with it, that we place that situation in God's hands as he see fits. Some cases that will result in actual healing. In others, it will be a comforting and strengthening of the person who is unwell. And yes, there will always be those questions of why do some people seem to get healed and others not? I don't have an answer to that. It goes along with those other questions we ask of any prayers which don't seem to be answered in the way we would like or expected. What I do know though is that when I do pray those prayers is that they're being offered to a loving sovereign God who will do things in his own way, in his own time. And the evidence for that it's in these chapters in Luke as I see Jesus' ministry and see Jesus at work. God has a far bigger understanding of what the right answer is when we pray than we can ever have or know. So Jesus' ministry in Galilee was founded on his preaching and healing in the power of the Spirit. And Luke says, I've written about this so that you may know that Jesus is who he proclaimed himself to be and who the Father declared him to be. And Luke says, but it doesn't stop with Jesus. It's for you who believe and follow too, for you also to be engaged in praying for those who are unwell and caring for them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the healing power that Jesus showed We pray for those we know who are hurting at this time. Those who are in pain, those waiting for results. Those who are receiving treatment which may be long and painful. Lord, bring your healing power to bear in those situations that in your way and in your time, you will bring healing and restoration. Because we ask it in your name. Amen. Amen.